So you wanna watch a movie but you don't know which Choosing the one can be a bitch But Jared and Drew have perfected the art So sit back, relax, and trust the dark It's Dartboard Movie Night What's going on everyone? I'm Drew And I'm Jared and Welcome to Dartboard Movie Night The podcast where we put 20 movies up on a board Throw a dart at it and let the fates decide what is going on, my friend? Not much, Drew. How are you this fine, sterling evening? <laughs> Doing good, man. Uh, we took a little uh, one-week break in between these. We've got a little cushion built up, so we're we're banking a few episodes. Yeah. But you know, we're the recording listeners this. won't know. Yeah, it's funny it, to talk yeah. about though. Uh, just so everyone knows, we're recording this like two months away. So who knows? The world may have ended by the time yeah. this is actually hitting. <laughs> yeah, there's some catastrophe, either. and we're just like, "This was a good movie." Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, how how funny would it be if this is all that aliens landed on when they landed here? For yeah, some the, reason, the, the weird <laughs> assemblage like, of letters that they found spelled out "dartboard movie night" and our voices were the ones that they heard. First. Yeah, they're just like, so this is what this whole species was about. These two fucking ham hocks just going back and forth about other works of art, just anyway. contributing nothing. <laughs> to the discourse just we could also call our podcast the peanut gallery <laughs> that's also an appropriate name <laughs> yes well tonight we are covering barton fink the coen brothers classic from 1991 uh this is my third in a row again jared how do you feel about that i i did not know that creeping and up i was on my record was, of four I was blissfully unaware. I was like, oh, yeah, blah, blah. And then you just brought it up and throw that pie in my face. And now I'm just, I'm covered in it. Like, oh, shit. Drew three on a row again. Well, hopefully we can hold. If you get up to four, I won't be happy about it. But if you get into five, very surly. Well, be. look, I mean, we're on our 15th main feed episode, uh, not including our Sling Blade bonus app. Uh, mm. And at this point, the score is 11 to 4 in favor of Drew. How do you feel? Oof. Yeah. Um, I Take think that in. Drink things, it in. Sit with that. I for a tell second. you this I think things are going to change, and I'll tell you why. The dartboard location has moved in the Ooh. apartment. It's in tell a new us more. Spot. So, in my apartment where the dartboard used to be, there's this massive glass coffee table that's like four feet long. And it's a thing of beauty, it's a wonderful thing. But I used to have to go behind that to throw the dart and it was like I was in between the coffee table and the television it was kind of jammed up and also the dart board was a little far away and like a little higher than it should be so recently the board has been moved to a much more breathy open location and I think these that constrictions that were on the other location were really promoting the Drew numbers but now that we're in this this kind of open, breathy space. I think I'll be, I'll be, I'll be catching up. So I don't expect that lead to stay. That's really where I see. thrive is in the the choking, uh, congested <laughs> corners of the, the universe. confined, like tight spaces. You watch this. Me after all this kind of rambling tonight, I'm definitely going to be hitting a Drew number for sure. But <laughs> yeah, you are you are manifesting the yeah, Drews. Putting it into the air. So yeah, we've got a strange one tonight in Barton Fink. So the logical initial question is, because it was a Drew pick, like you're saying, we're on a bit of a streak here. How did Barton Fink get on the board? 
I, I don't really have a good answer for this. This is one that's always been on my watch list that I've, you know, kind of skimmed past. It's another one, you know, we talked about of the we'll get it get to it one day kind of movie. Right. Um, I don't know why this is a I'll get to it one day kind of movie for me. It always has been. I knocked off Raising Arizona a couple of years ago for the first time. I still haven't seen Blood Simple, but this otherwise is kind of closing out my early period Cohen's uh, viewing because I've now seen everything of theirs from uh, after Blood Simple uh, up until basically 2000. I haven't seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou, I think is the next in line that I haven't really? seen. Really? Oh, which all right. is amazing. That's, that's, that's all. That. It's literally been sitting in my queue as one that I could potentially put on the board at some point. But I don't want to spend too much time on the same filmmakers. I like to kind of get around and, and you know, see other stuff. So uh, I, I probably will end up getting to that in my own time. But right. either way, I've seen a lot of fucking Coens at this point. I've, yeah. I've seen pretty much everything. Yeah. I mean, they're just. They're among the most iconic filmmakers from our time, I would say. Like, you know, undoubtedly. Yeah, and I guess that's why I put them on the board is that I, I it's an it's a reason to watch another movie from a master that I already know I really love. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, and so I yeah, I went into this kind of knowing that I I probably would enjoy it, and I really did. Um I, I think Cohen the Cohen's for me they mean so much to my development of my film tastes, you know, when I was younger that it's hard for me to watch them dispassionately. Like it's hard for me to watch them uh, without bringing like my love of them as just filmmakers to the table. So I don't know. What's your, what's your background with the Coens? What's uh, how far back do you go? What are your favorites and and kind of how did, how did this fit into your, uh, your knowledge of their overall filmography? I love the Coens. I wish I could remember what my first Coen Brothers movie was. My gut is telling me Fargo, but I don't know that for a certainty. But I I definitely love their movies. And the ones that stick out to me in terms of like the, the big name ones that are commonly brought up are my big three, I guess I would say, would be Fargo, No Country for Old Men, and The Big Lebowski. Those mm-hmm. are those are just like amazing movies. Um I would argue they're probably their most famous three that, in a way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Those are the ones that like yeah. you could tell. Like, like if you're going up to someone and, and you're like, "Oh, I watched a Coen Brothers movie the other day," and they're like, "Who are the Coen Brothers?" You'd say those three movies to identify yeah. them. And I would say, I would say, like almost every person has seen at least one of those. Exactly. They're, yeah. they're they're just a huge well, and Fargo and Fargo at the time was such a sensation that everyone yeah. in the '90s saw Fargo. Yeah. And I will say Fargo, I don't know if I had expectations or whatever. Like the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, yeah, that was pretty good. And it's just gotten better and better. It's, it's I, gotten, I feel that way about most of their movies. I think yeah. for me, it takes two or three viewings of their films to really let them fully wash over me. Yeah. It's just, I mean, Fargo specifically, and we'll, we'll get into it more when we talk about some of the common man stuff, but mm-hmm. Fargo is just, uh, an amazing, amazing movie. And the Coens have such a knack for absorbing interesting details about their surroundings and filtering them out into these stories because they're from Mm -hmm. Minnesota is my understanding. They're from this area and a movie like Fargo is so set there. And then you see movies set in LA a lot of times and they seem to just be so um, observant 
towards the quirks of their surroundings. Uh, but then, I mean, No Country was obviously all the rage when it came out, won Best Picture that year, and, and uh, deservedly so being all the rage. It's an amazing, amazing movie. And then The Big Lebowski, again, is just this amazing cult film that is just uh, so unique and so bizarre, and but also has a lot of cool influences, too, that from things that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but super cool. And then so when I got into movies, I was like making more of a conscious effort to pursue Coen Brothers stuff. Recently, you and I talked in kind of a pre-show bit about uh, revisiting True Grit and how much how we both feel that movie has aged very, very well. Um, you know, not to speak for you, but like we both were just like, this movie is awesome. And then in the past, I found all these kind of little gems of theirs that, um, I was like, wow, this movie's really good too. They don't really have a lot of misses. I've heard the lady killers is not good. I don't think I saw the lady killers in, in theaters when it came out, when I was younger, that was actually, I I think, maybe my first Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> really? Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, because I saw, I, me and my mom had like kind of a thing in high school where we would just go see movies like when we would have mm-hmm. the day off together for some reason. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I remember cool. I took a sick day and like I, she really wanted to see Something's Gotta Give. So I went and saw that with her. Uh, mm. And I remember, like, I, I still love Nancy Myers to this day. I think those movies are delightful, and that mm. that movie rules. Uh, but yeah, I saw this one with her, uh, or Lady Killers. I mean, with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's a weird fucking movie, and I I don't think it's aged well. Probably like a lot of fucking racist ass jokes in that movie. But I mm. had a really great time with it at the time. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, they're just they're really really good filmmakers and i think there's also all that's like the understatement too. of the century because let's yeah, be real yeah, like let's true. let's come on let's let's talk about like i think we're 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 being too just like kid glovesy with this this these guys are fucking titans of filmmaking yeah like to yeah. be able to do what they do movie to movie and like maintain the level of quality that they do across their filmography like they have like some kind of stinkers like no i shouldn't say they have stinkers they have no stinkers they are like stink free they the worst that they free. get from, by all accounts, I haven't seen this movie, is Intolerable Cruelty. Like, that's the only one that people say. And, and The Lady Killers, like you said, those are the only two, really, that people say are, like, maybe not good. Yeah, out but of, like, maybe 15 or so. I don't they know. They made how many a lot have, of movies, dude. They made, like, so 20 many. movies. Yeah. I also haven't seen Intolerable Cruelty. And I remember early on in my times, kind of in the biz, quote unquote, I work in a very low level position and TV production and stuff. But. An actor I really respected was telling me like you rubbing elbows this... with the Coens. No, no, good God, no! But this this like actor in Maine that was just like a stage guy who did small things for like forty eight hour film festivals and things like that. He, he he and his wife were telling me that like Intolerable Cruelty is great. People talk shit about it, but it's just such an L A movie. It it hits it on the head, and I've never seen it, but. There's all these ones like I am a huge fan of the man who wasn't there. I'm a huge Great fan movie. of a serious man. And there's all these movies that like kind of get not really talked about. And then there's a bunch I haven't seen like Hail Caesar. I've never seen. Um, I've never seen Blood Simple. I've never seen Raising Arizona. So they do have this sort of intimidating filmography, but but it's always worthwhile. It's You've got a lot good. of great movies to watch, my friend, because those yeah. a lot of the ones you just listed out are some of my favorites of theirs. Yeah. Um, like. Let's let's talk about where this movie sits within their filmography. I think it's a yeah. good time to kind of catch up on where they sit. So 
The Coen Brothers debuted in 1984 with the movie Blood Simple. It won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and got them immediate acclaim uh, right out of the gates. It made a bunch of top tens of the year list. Uh, that movie, I believe, actually might be on Criterion, um, mm. which I, I've, I should pick that up if so. But it's an early Frances McDormand performance. It's like her breakout cool. performance. Um, yeah, it's it's supposed to be great, uh, but it, it's mm. kind of a straightforward uh, thriller mystery, I think, by uh, from what I understand. Um, also, just want to say real quick, I'm shocked that it was 84. Mm-hmm. I would not have guessed that it was that early. Like, I didn't know they were really making hay for that long. Well, yeah. So around that time, get this. So uh, do you, you know that Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand are married, right? Are they still married or were they They married? still are. Yeah, they've been married okay, for cool. a long, long time. Um, nice, so th- yeah. They were roommates, the Coen brothers were roommates with Francis McDormand. And then guess who else? Holly Hunter <laughs> and Sam Raimi. Holy hell. So for those who don't know, Holly Hunter is Oscar nominated, maybe winning uh, not actress for broadcast news. She was in like a just she's one of the greatest actresses of, of all time. She was uh, uh, a last girl in The Incredibles. She's the fucking yeah. best. She's great. Also, if anyone hasn't seen Broadcast News, check that shit out. One of the best movies of all time and one of the best performances of all time by Holly Hunter. Maybe my favorite rom-com. And and called rom-com. And and going back, I mean, just before we got to talking about the movie tonight, in our pre-show, we were talking a little bit about Albert Brooks. Um, So, you know, another great fucking yeah. performance there but but and they were so they were all studying like they were theater roommates and stuff, together uh just because they were all trying to make it in hollywood and uh and sam <sighs> raimi sam raimi had already made the evil dead the first one he hadn't made evil dead 2 yet um and uh that's you know, amazing yeah so for those who don't know sam raimi is a filmmaker he made as i said the evil dead evil dead 2 army of darkness he also made uh the spider-man original trilogy with toby Maguire. uh so he's responsible for spider-man 2 which to, to this day is still the best comic book movie ever made and unquestionably in my opinion that is like the best uh, so yeah, he, the dude is a fucking legend. So it's crazy that they're all working together. But actually, Sam Raimi wrote the Hudsucker Proxy, which is their follow up to uh, Barton Fink. Oh, cool! And yeah. that's one I've never actually even heard of. Which I'm oh, really interested to see. One it's a day. good one. I mean, it's a Paul Newman performance. You you dig it? Oh, I love Paul Newman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway. So, yeah, so they made Blood Simple. Uh, After that, they made uh, Raising Arizona with Nick Cage and Holly Hunter. Uh, After that, they made uh, Miller's Crossing. And while they were writing Miller's Crossing, they hit a patch of of writer's block. They they don't like to call it writer's block. They make a very specific point of saying it wasn't writer's block, but it's what it was. Um, they were mm. just they were hitting a wall with it. They needed to take a break and step away. And they took three weeks away to live in a hotel. And they wrote Barton Fink that during that time. So oh. that's that's the originating, you know, the gestation of this movie was them kind of in this exact kind of mindset that Barton is in in this movie. Um, yeah. It's just a, it, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's just like this spark of inspiration that artists have, where something just flows out of them in this crazy yeah. way. You know, it's um, it's it's one of that that old adage, like write about what you know, mm-hmm. and they that's what they knew at the time. They were in a hotel with writer's block, and that's it's just cool when you hear these stories, 
And those sorts of things are all in the movie. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, they were just kind of going through this and they used that sort of blockage in a creative way. It's just really cool. Yeah. No, it's it's really cool. And I mean, it's coming in the middle of them writing my favorite of their movies, Miller Miller's Crossing, which is like, it's insane to me that that took place just in the middle of that process. Yeah. And it's, which is funny too, I'll just say briefly, I saw Miller's Crossing once. It was not that impressed. You've been hounding me to be like, see it again. You have to see it again. Uh, so I that is on the list to kind of revisit. But um, it's it's crazy, too, because also in terms of like the things that are probably going on in their lives at this time, having several successful films in a row, like all of that is in this, too. Like the pressure of being successful and the pressure of people expecting great things from you creatively is the movie is laced with this sort of baggage that they were likely dealing with at the time as artists and it's just kind of cool that they just, again, incorporate a lot of this stuff. And again, this is just my perception on it. I don't know how much of it is true, but it does seem like a semi-autobiographical movie in a way. And it is cool. It's just a cool flick. But let me ask you this, kind of like, overall, what, did you, what was your reaction to this movie? And actually, let me ask you this first. Mm-hmm. What did you know about this movie before going into it? Because we're obviously decently versed in the Coens. Did you have any sort of, as I would say, baggage that you were bringing in with you? Did you were you aware of certain twists and turns, or was it pretty clean canvas for you? I was aware that a lot of people really loved this movie. Mm-hmm. I knew that it had won the Palme d'Or at at Cannes that year. I knew that John Turturro had won Best Actor, and they had won Best Director. Like it was like that they had won the Triple Crown basically at at Cannes that year. Mm-hmm. Um, which, for those who don't know, that film festival is you know. As, as far as like defining what the the headiest art of the year is, you know, that's kind of where you look for, for a lot of that. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I knew that this movie was thought of as, as just a dense, super well-constructed art, or artful, you know, film basically, mm-hmm. like is kind of what I was anticipating. And I was, and that was not, wrong you know that was that was the correct way to approach this i mean this movie is something you pick apart and something that you can theorize about for days and the you know the the imagery and the the thematic uh the way that it ties things together and and um i don't know it's 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 just it's got so much fucking going on and you know we talked about this in the pre-show before we even started recording but like I watched this movie a week ago because we took two weeks off in between and I watched this movie in, uh, you know, in an kind of an anxious state. And, uh, and I think like that combined with the anxious nature of the movie, I was just like, I need fucking time to process this thing, man. Like there's so much going on in this. Yeah. Uh, And none of it, like there are large portions of the movie on first watch where I was just like, I have no fucking idea what's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, How did you feel about it on first viewing? It's funny. I had a similar reaction. So I, I had a couple of sneaky spoilers with this movie. I also oh, had did never. Oh, did you? What'd you get I, spoiled I, I had on? never seen it before. Two things come to mind. I knew John Turturro was in it. No, I'm just kidding. That's not a spoiler. <laughs> I back in the day, I used to be really into Inside the Actors Studios interviews, and I oh, watched sure. the one with John Goodman. So James Lipton, this guy, kind of a highfalutin artsy type. 
would would interview these actors and they were generally good really good conversations for the most part and John Goodman was on and talking about he was asked about Barton Fink and he referenced that scene about that he mentions in the movie of like well I told the doctor I had an ear infection and he's like yeah you got an ear infection it's like I could have told you that like ten dollars you should pay me and he's like, that started an argument. And John Goodman was like talking about it after the fact. And he's like, I just always thought that was so funny. Like he just says, and that started an argument. And it probably meant that he just lopped someone's head off. Like, And and so I knew in this film that he was a killer. I knew that he, so I, I, I kind of, okay. it kind of, I wouldn't say polluted. That's too big of a word. But like, I knew that he was kind of like a, this sociopath, this violent character. Sure. Um, and then... Right before I watched it, I was telling some friends uh, that I was going to see it. And they're like, oh, I've seen that. It's you got to stop telling friends that you're going to watch things. Well, they ask. It's fine. But And this was a very <laughs> mild, this was a very mild spoiler. They just, they were just like, it's weird. So I knew it was going to be strange. And I oh, knew. Oh, that's not a spoiler. That's not a big spoiler. I knew it was going to be strange. And I knew that Goodman was a killer. So I knew those two things going into it. Um, but first watch, I. I was really struck by a couple of incredibly strong qualities of the movie really overall dug it a lot. And then kind of like you, there was, there were these just very surreal and very strange things where I was just like, I don't know what that means. And I, I would kind of go down these little rabbit holes of like, well, maybe they're saying this and that and this and that. And then another weird thing would happen. And eventually I would just kind of tap out. Of, of trying to understand it. And I would just be like, I don't, I don't fucking know, but I enjoyed the ride for sure. And particularly loved the writing and the performances. And I will say this just right out of the gate in terms of early impressions. I did kind of speed rewatch and see it a second time today. It might be my favorite written movie of theirs in terms of oh, just the, the quality okay. of the dialogue and the writing was just like, it's always apparent with them like that they're often considered to be some of the best of, of their generation with dialogue and they're incredibly gifted. They have a very unique voice. Like they're, they're sure. you know, Cohen dialogue when you hear it versus another, you know, filmmaker or writer. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, I don't think it's anywhere near the top of my list, my personal favorite list for them. Uh, but in terms of strength of writing, it's really high up. I, I really, really liked that aspect of it. And we'll get into more detail overall. But I would say, again, there was stuff that was so open for interpretation and so confusing. I wouldn't say it annoyed me. But I, again, at a certain point, I surrendered to not understanding it and just needing to accept that. Uh, but overall, I really dug the movie and I'm glad I watched it. Nice. Yeah. No, I, I, I had a really good time with this. Um, I, I think it's it's so dense. We could never sit here and like pick it apart in an, in an episode like top to bottom. So we're going to we're going to talk more in generalities I think on this episode than we're we're not going to spend too much time theorizing about it and stuff no, like that. If you that, want that, there's a million video essays, you know, that you can sure go look are. up or what this or, means you know, and what that means, you know. Or or more critical, you know, written approaches. Yeah. I'm sure there's there's plenty you can read on that, but I think like for us we're going to have kind of more of a just surface surface level reaction to this thing cuz like yeah, that's that's how we watched it. Having said that, I guess you did write down here a note about uh, kind of the common man in Coen Brothers movies, yes. and I kind of want to get back into talking about the Coens as filmmakers because Absolutely. this movie is definitely, you know, as we said, like they have a very unique voice, and and 
they do bring up a lot of common themes, like things that show up a lot of times in their films. So what do you, what were you uh, referring to specifically with the common man? A lot of times I feel like the Coen brothers movies, and this is again, very, or not again, but this is a very broad stroke statement, but they kind of fall into these camps of like the common man, quote unquote, and then sort of like the surreal, almost unbelievably uncommon type of person. You know, you have something like a Fargo, which is, that is, in my opinion, a common man film. And obviously, the term man is being used expansively to cover any person. Um, like, Francis McDormand is, like, I think, a king of, like, the strengths of a quote-unquote common person, in a way, in that film. We can call her a queen. She's, we can call her a queen? She's, well, I'm trying to stick with the common man <laughs> trope. But, <laughs> I think you're um, overthinking it, dude. Yeah, no, I think it's... it's <laughs> There's no need to gender these terms, you know, she's, but she is like a, a champion of the strengths that can be within an average person. You know, she is this, this pregnant woman who speaks with this kind of silly accent and, and is an e is easy to intellectually dismiss to an outsider. Her simplicity is her strength. Yes. And she, she proves herself in that movie to be, uh, very intelligent, very strong, and all these things. And I think, like, so that is an example of the quote-unquote common man, I would say. For sure. To, to some extent, like Josh Brolin in No Country for Old Men is oh, somewhat absolutely. of— Oh, absolutely. It's all this, it's uh, all wrapped up. Yeah, so that's another common man story that they've told. But they've also explored— Well, I mean, like, Raising Arizona is about, you know, down-on-their-luck, uh, you know, escaped— uh, convicts that mm. abduct a baby because they want to build a family. Like that's mm -hmm. like, it's, you know, like when you're saying like the common man, it's like, it's like blue collar, like, like, you know, salt of the earth people like that, that are the center of their stories more often than not. Right. And then we have kind of other side of the scale, like burn after reading. There's some common people in it, but it's like, people in the CIA like it's not really a common man story or something like and I haven't seen Hail Caesar but I would imagine that's not a common man story and like so I don't know they they, they go outside of that a lot but there does seem to the be the Big Lebowski a, is is absolutely the common man that's true that's true surrounded by uncommon people in some way and he himself was Uli. Uncommon, yeah like all these kind of weird crazy characters you know so I just find it fascinating that there does seem to be a lot of like common storytelling. I, I, there's an element of the common man in a lot of their films. And it sounds like potentially they were stressed out about getting disconnected from that early on in their creative careers, somewhat early on. And I think they were kind of, it seems to me anyway, that they were filtering some of that like concern of as they get closer and closer to increased success, Will they lose ties to where the success actually comes from? They kind of like are pointing a finger at the artists a little bit too. And like, I think this movie is saying something about how artists just kind of like feed on common people for like inspiration. And I don't know, it, it seems to be a lot about the plight of the artists and how um, silly it is in a way, or how like it doesn't have a ton of meaning to be like, I don't know. No, this, just, this movie's incredibly nihilistic. Yeah, it's very like self-deprecating and like, you know, we have this person. Nothing matters. Like, yeah, nothing. Like, they they are art. Like, 
you see it really in not to jump all the way to the, towards the end of the movie, but like when Barton finally is able to write the script and he goes out to celebrate and he's dancing with the girl and the Navy guys who are about to ship off to war in World War II uh, are like, hey, let us cut in for a dance. We're about to ship off. And he's like, are you kidding? I just had a breakthrough. I just like, I wrote something. And, yeah, the, and yeah. they're like, who fucking cares, dude? We're and it's risking like, our lives in World War II. <laughs> yeah. And, but that's, a, that's like exactly what they're, they're saying is like, nothing we do matters. This is all yeah. just like to satisfy our own egos of, of, you know, us being good at this. I think they're kind of wagging their finger at like art and commercialism co- colliding and like this the silliness of it all when there's actual like problems in the world um but at the same time they're not really making light of his plight i don't know it's it's just it's fascinating to view this movie it, it's impossible to not view this movie through the perspective of where they are in their careers and the fact that they were dealing with writer's block and probably getting all these meetings in Hollywood of people who were trying to sweep them off their feet, giving them all these promises. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were asked to make a wrestling movie at some point or something like that, you know? So I think they were just really kind of pushing all of this stuff and like filtering it. And they built this kind of very surreal sort of nightmarish, strange story around it that I'm sure is full with, with tons and tons of fiction but I think a lot of the anxiety they were faced with at the time and also recognizing how silly it is to be anxious over such things or about such things, I think they were really harnessing those emotions into this movie. That's what it seems like to me. And and and, th- and therefore, there seems to be a lot of honesty in it from just a casual observer looking at it. It just seems like they're really, they're really trying to take down the, the ridiculous plight of the artist. Yeah. No, it's it's funny to watch. I mean, and they're they've always been this way. I mean, they 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 really do love to point a finger at the absurdity of life and yes. the completely unpredictable nature of it. And For just sure. you know, it, it's. I think they they like to take it to the extreme, and you know, with stuff like the end of this movie, with you know escalating dialing the notch up to 11 you know with the fire and you know the the yeah. demon you know kind of so shit weird. like that stuff so is, is so out of left field uh in in a great way you know i don't think i've ever really seen a movie like this in that way maybe you could argue more recently something like sorry to bother you where you know what i think about you know what I was thinking about watching the end of this movie? I was thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Really? Just with the way that that movie dials it up to 11 at the end of the movie with the just out of nowhere violence and yeah. rewriting the history of Sharon Tate and the murder, the the Manson murders. I can fucking see that. That so the way that that movie a- does that rug pull at the end because it's really setting you up to think it's just a retelling of what happened that night, mm-hmm. and then they they pull the rug out with that with Cliff and and the dog, you know, fighting the the Manson murderers, like that shit came out of nowhere, and I was cackling laughing because I was like. I did not see that coming at all. Like that's kind of how I felt watching this movie a little bit. Yeah. I think, um, I think I agree. I like what you said about, about once upon a time in Hollywood, because Tarantino had done that before where he rewrote history and Inglorious bastards, you know, where they're famously just 
shooting Hitler like a million times in this burning movie theater. But that was a movie that was on it. You knew it was kind of quote unquote surreal or it was amplified. I wouldn't say it was necessarily. It wasn't leading up to a real event. Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. You could see that it was kind of cartoonish intentionally. But you're right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has a sort of realistic start and then it just takes this swerving detour. This movie has a sort of kind of realistic framework and strange things are happening. We don't really know why things like the wallpaper curling off the wall and things like that. So we know there's weirdness in this film and the hotel seems sort of strange and bizarre and like not real in a way. They're just like the way, you know, think of like Steve Buscemi when he first is introduced comes out of the, the, this like hatch in the floor. There's just all this kind of weirdness. So it's, it's in the film. But not it, it just kind of just sprinkled until yeah. like the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie where it just takes a detour into crazy town. And there's just like all this kind of poetic symbolism of flames and fire and water and 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 all this kind of craziness. It really it really takes a turn there. And I can't remember seeing a lot of movies like that like a lot of movies i see that are quote unquote surreal like we recently we talked about the exterminating angel and that movie gets surreal pretty quick like about 15 20 minutes in the movie it's like yeah it's a weird movie it, this is this was kind of interesting that it just it just becomes even so much more and more strange you know i'm sure there's a lot of movies like that you mentioned once upon a time in hollywood i was really hung up with adaptation with this movie oh I think interesting adaptation so? uh just the fact that it's a, a writer dealing with writer's block and mm-hmm. kind of trying to push through and being being struggling with the blank page and struggling with getting started and also the fact that that movie is very surreal and strange um and is dealing with it's also dealing with the structure of hollywood and to some extent uh the absurdity of that uh, so it's I interesting think, you say that because that's uh, Charlie Kaufman has said that this is one of his favorite movies. And oh, uh, cool! For those who don't know, adaptation was written by Charlie Kaufman, also the writer of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, being John Malkovich, bunch of movies. Considered by many to be like one of the most unique and original screenwriters of his generation, and sure. he seems to be tapping into a very similar energy that the Coens mm-hmm. were wrestling with at the time, because when adaptation, the film came out he was coming off of uh being john malkovich and he was being getting this sort of lauded critical acclaim so i feel like he as an artist is probably wrestling with a lot of these similar things of like where do i go from here mm-hmm. do i only have this one story in me which is something that john Turturro's character says in barton fink straight out um you know so it it just i'm sure a lot of artists wrestle with this particular demon and i bet a lot of them and i and I bet there were films that came before Barton Fink that did the same thing, too. Mm-hmm. Um, those were a few of the things about adaptation that kind of were sticking out. Um, but also sort of satirizing the structure of Hollywood. I mean, we saw a little bit of that going, hitting the Wayback Machine a little bit, but with um, In a Lonely Place. You know, that was another movie that parts of that were kind of poking fun at Hollywood or satirizing what it's like to live within that framework and and deal with creative people and deal with these issues. And um, I don't know it, but it yeah. was, it was cool for sure. I want to kind of get into the look of this movie. Cause I think this movie's gorgeous. Mm. And I want to highlight the fact that 
This was the first of many collaborations between the Coen brothers and a cinematographer, director of photography named Roger Deakins, uh, who, Jared, how familiar are you with Roger Deakins and his work? He's one of those guys, I know the name, it's thrown around often as, as one of the best cinematographers of all time, but I forget which films he's done. You know, and I actually didn't know that he worked with the Coen brothers that often uh, before, you know, before yeah. kind of diving into this movie. Well, so Roger Deakins is one of the all-time greats of cinematography. He has made some of the greatest looking movies of the last 25, 30 years, for sure. Uh, more like 30 years, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, this movie was 1991. You know, yeah, it, it's been a long time that he has been at the top. But, I mean, the guy has been nominated for a ton of Oscars. He's been nominated. He's won two. Uh, he won in 2020 for 1917. And he won in 2018 for Blade Runner 2049. Um, but he also was nominated for Sicario, for Unbroken, for Prisoners, for Skyfall, True Grit, The Reader, Assassination of Jesse James by Coward, the Coward Robert Ford, No Country for Old Men. Both of those were in the same year, actually, and those are two Ooh. of the best-looking movies of all time. Ooh. The Man Who Wasn't There, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Kundun, Fargo, and Shawshank Redemption. He's been nominated for all of those, and he has been the cinematographer on, I want to say, every single Coen Brothers movie from this point forward, basically. Um, the Coen brothers had worked with Barry Sonnenfeld before this, who also directed uh, the Adams Family movies and Men in Black, weirdly. But he was their cinematographer on Raising Arizona and Blood Simple. He was like, you know, one of their friends. And he, the only reason he didn't shoot Barton Fink was that uh, he was busy shooting Adams Family. Mm. And while that's when they brought in Roger Deakins and the rest is history. I mean, <laughs> the rest he's, is he's history. Insane. One of those guys to just super diverse. One of those artists who's just crazy diverse. I mean, you look at a film like this versus something like Skyfall or, or even further more extreme Blade Runner 2049. Like you couldn't get more different looking than those movies. And we've talked about it with different cinematographers in the past, but I'm always so fascinated by People who who have a a knack for this visual art where they can they don't they're not one trick ponies they don't make one look like to quote Zoolander just one look but like you look at something like this is small in a hotel room cramped space and then Blade Runner twenty forty nine is future metropolis rain blues it's just crazy that it's the same well, person does this you know you say that but I mean the other part of Deacons too is that as much as he is versatile in that way, he also has trademarks. Like he, mm. he, as with any great artist, like there are things you can identify in a lot of Deacon's work, his use of shadow, his use of, you know, contrasting colors and like bright neon. And, you know, mm. he, he does stuff that is, you know, you can compare across his works with different directors even, uh, that he, you know, has his trademarks that way. So, and I, I just, I find that really cool to see. Yeah, it's it's cool because, well, I'm interested to hear because I, I was not really struck by this film visually, which is not to say it it was bad. I think it was very camouflaged and very fitting what the story needed. I didn't really notice it, and that's kind of a strength. 
was there an element to the visual style of this movie that kind of popped to you specifically, or did it just feel right? He He's known for using a lot of bright yellow light in a lot of his his uh, shots. Mm-hmm. And that that is everything in the hotel is very Deacons-y to me. Right when you um, said that, I was picturing the shot like down the hallway where it's all mm-hmm. like the, not lanterns, but you know what I mean? Light fixtures along the hallway yeah. radiating that golden yellow glow. So I get what you're saying. Yeah. And he, it, all of his movies have kind of a dreamlike, very cinematic quality. They don't necessarily, like they they are reflecting a vision of real life, but they're also not, um, they're they're heightened in a way, right? You know? I think I get what you're going for. Uh, I like to me, it sounds like I would compare something like this to something like Saving Private Ryan, which is a movie that feels like you're there. You know, it's it's, sure. it's I feel like it's shot to look like you're really there, and you're you're you know. I mean, again, there's grain in the in the film stock and things like that, but other like in terms of camera movement and style, it's like you're there. This movie is not like you're there. It's it's which not to say that it's disjointed or disconnected from the audience but it's it's a little bit more artistic for I hate that word but you know what I mean it's not it's not a documentary it's style it's more dreamlike like is is yes. what I would say yeah I like I like that a lot more than artistic dreamlike yes I love the way that in specific to this movie the way he's contrasting the two worlds of Barton Fink between the Hollywood world where he's like in these glossy like nice apartments and like offices and you know out on patios and you know having drinks and whatnot and then you contrast that with the hotel this like dingy drab yellow like sweaty you know like the the wallpapers peeling off and the glue is melting down the wall and like it's you know that the griminess of that like the way they contrast those two things that's part of that is the cinematographer bringing that to life yes and uh, you know it's like the hotel is like a both a living and a decaying dying place mm-hmm. like again it's just it got this wet moisture and then it's always like uh in a way refreshing when the movie opens up outside of that where he's in you know whether he's in tony shalhoub's office or by the pool with with uh, the sort of major producer character it's like, oh, I can breathe. I'm out of that. I'm out of that room that was so confining and so claustrophobic. All of which I would imagine is intentional and, and works really well. I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Deacon's rules. We can move off of him. Well, let's get into talking about some of these actors because I think it's really interesting. We talked about the writing process of this movie. That's famous, you know, for the story of of how this movie was made. Part of that is that. The Coen brothers were in the middle of working with John Turturro on Miller's Crossing. He was helping them work on that character, and they loved working with him so much, apparently, that they wrote this movie basically for him. Uh, and I found that really fascinating. They also wrote the John Goodman part for John Goodman, like in the gestation process. Like that was, you know, who they had in mind. So that's really from cool. two separate films of theirs too. You and know? you and you, it makes sense because like I can't imagine anyone else playing these two characters. No, and my God, are they both fantastic? So so good, incredible. What is it about Turturro? Like I feel like we all love him. Like every time Turturro's on screen, we're happy. He's just a fun actor to watch. He can, he can play a really wide spread of, of different types of characters. Yes, and he's got that magic element that you know I love. 
where he looks like a real person. Like, which is not to say he's he's bad looking in any way, but he's just he looks like someone you'd see on the street. He's not stunningly so gorgeous or anything. He's just a very he's got a very cool look. He's he delivers amazing performances, and every time I'm see I see him, I'm happy, and I'm like, why don't I see him more? And I think he just much he must also really just dig stage. I bet he does a lot of like plays and stuff, and just I think does so. He's a New York actor. He's one of those yeah. guys. And think like, have you ever seen The Night of? I have. He's God, great. He's in that. so good in that. So, so he really good. But is. anyway. Well, let's talk about Totoro's career. Cause, so <clears throat> this is really early Totoro. I mean, he, he was not a huge... I mean, he was a, a, an up-and-coming actor, but he was not like a leading man by any means. So the first thing I remember seeing in, him in, in terms of like the beginning of his career, is he had a really small part in uh, the William Friedkin movie To Live and Die in L.A., which is a great little detective movie from uh, 1985 that I highly recommend. Uh, it's one of my faves. Uh, but then he did The Color of Money with Scorsese in 1986 with, uh, with Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, the, the billiards movie, uh, follow-up to The Hustler. Uh, and then he, did, he had a run where he was in uh, three different Spike Lee movies in three straight years. He was in Do the Right Thing, Mo Better Blues, and Jungle Fever in, ni- in 89, 90, and 91. Mm. Dude was already like working with auteurs at this point. But he did Miller's Crossing with the Coens in 1990, and he's one of the best parts of the movie he he's this you know kind of the fredo character a little bit of the of this universe and and it's miller's crossing he is so good yeah yeah i mean my memory of him was he's a bit more conniving and a bit more For intelligent sure. he, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but but yeah i mean he yes i get what you're saying not to spoil but i just it, mean yeah, he's this sniveling cowardy kind of guy that like or that's at least is what he promotes right right yeah 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 is there yeah. a better cameo in film history than Jesus and the Big Lebowski. Like, talk about a, someone who has such a small amount of screen time and is so memorable. I, and again, maybe it's dismissive to call it a cameo, but it's a really small role. It's tiny. And yeah. you want to talk about making a meal out of something. Like, holy But that's his whole crap. game. That's his whole deal. I mean, like, he even shows up in Adam Sandler shit, just doing, you know, making a meal out of a yeah. tiny side character. Like, dude, when was the last time you watched Mr. Deeds? He's fucking great in Mr. Deeds. <laughs> I, I have, I remember him in Transformers when he was in Transformers briefly. Yeah, and he was, yeah. he was being ridiculous, you know? It's, um, he's just one of those guys. You, you just love to see him pop up. But uh, anyway. Love Totoro. I think he's incredible in this movie. I think he he plays this character so so well. Uh, the like he really embodies the like delusional artist type in such a great way. Where it's like you're you're sympathetic to him, even though he's delusional at times. Yes, I think that's so. I think that's so beautifully said, Drew, because he's he has good intentions. At the start of the movie, he's talking about like. You know, his manager, whoever asks him, like, what do you do for a living? And he's like, I don't know, just try to just try to make things better or whatever. Like, and it, he really means that, I think. So no, we're, yeah. we, we're definitely cheering for him in this film. But his delusions are evident. I think playing this character is easier said than done because you could easily just be out on this guy like, fuck this character, this guy yes. is a delusional asshole who he's thinks he's so much better than he is. He's a pretentious douche. But Totoro just has this likable quality to him that you're like, buddy, 
I want you I just come on like just it's a fucking wrestling story come on just knock this shit out like get over it but you and it's it's coming from a place of love with this guy for sure and also the fact that I feel like his in, his intentions are baked into the writing where this character is is really concerned about losing touch with the common person and does want to be a champion for the quote unquote common person. I th- I think he really does want that, you know. He um, wants it. He doesn't know what it means to to actually get it though. He's also not utilizing he's not utilizing the opportunities to tap into it really. I feel like that's a lot of what John Goodman's character is saying to him and we'll get to John of course, but when he tells him you're not listening like so many times we see John Turturro interrupt John Goodman and and like he has an opportunity to hear about the quote unquote common man in his room mm-hmm. and he starts interrupting and going off on the plight of the artist. So he he's a lovable character and we like him and his intentions are good, but we also see him miss out on opportunities to tap into what he is trying to explore constantly. You're right. It's it's it would be very easy to dislike this person, but he he softens his edges with this sort of slightly downtrodden fish out of water charm that kind of makes us really like him and and mm-hmm. want him to succeed. But I mean the fact the very fact that the last line of his script is the same as the last line of his p- play is so funny to me. Yeah. Like it, it, like that's just like that really because I remember there were times in first viewing where I was like, wait, is this guy a hack? Because again, we are rooting for him, but he just these things happen. Is like I think this guy's kind of a little hacky, and then I for me it really comes home when he repeats that line, and I don't mean a postcard or whatever, and you see him type it out, and it's what had been said at the, in the end of his play, like oh my god, he just made the same thing again, but in sort of some wrestling thing, and he's deluded and thinking it's like his best work. Um, as he's kind of gone crazy in this hotel room to a degree. Um, but yeah, Chatoro is just so fucking good. And and he plays that nervousness sort of really well. And I don't know. I just, I'm, again, one of those guys I just love seeing. I love, love seeing him on camera. John Goodman, of course. All-time Cohen brother collaborator. He was in Raising Arizona. He was in uh, Big Lebowski. He was in... Uh, what what else has he been? Has he been in any other Cohen stuff? Uh, he, oh yeah, Inside Lewin Davis. Oh yeah, Inside Lewin Davis, kind of a smaller role that's also really impactful. Yep. Very excited to hear that. Oh brother, where art thou? Has not been seen by you. I hope you put that on the board someday soon. I know you mentioned it, maybe just knocking it out on your own, but I've only seen it once, and I would like to revisit it again. So okay. if you if you find it in your heart, have a heart. To quote John Turturro, <laughs> you can put whatever you want on yeah. the board. I just don't want to yeah. double up on a director this early. No, yeah, no, I get it, I get it. But he, uh, John Goodman, is in that as well. Oh, brother, where art thou? And he's he's interesting in it for sure. But yeah, you're right. Cohen Brothers alum. Yeah, no, I mean he was he was breaking out at this point. I mean he was in, like I said, he was in Arizona. He was in Raising Arizona in 1987. Uh, Roseanne premiered in 1988. He was in. He was a major supporting character in a Spielberg movie in 1990 uh, called Always with Richard Dreyfuss and Holly Hunter. Um, and so, yeah, this was like right in the midst of that kind of breakout period for John Goodman. It's really cool to see like this early performance from him. Yeah, and he's just so great. It's so, incredible. 
as I mentioned before, I knew before seeing this movie that he was a killer. You I did, did not. not, right? No. So what did you think on first viewing of his performance? Did you did you sense something that ominous was going on? I sensed a little bit of like I I figured they weren't going to just leave him as this, you know, kind of friendly traveling salesman. Like I I just didn't see him as staying as that kind of character. Uh, didn't expect him to be a, a murderer in that way, but it wasn't totally surprising given like what I know about the Coens. That's like exactly the kind of twist that they throw on a character like that. Yeah, yeah. I just can't help but be charmed by John Goodman. Like he, he's there is something very, I can't think of another word than charming. Kind of maybe it's just something to do with size because I was gonna say kind of like John Candy, but there is something about him specifically. Like, I just, you, I kind of liked him, even though I knew where it was going in terms of what his character was like. Well, yeah, he's, you're supposed to. I mean, and, and that's like yeah. the John Goodman of it all. Like, he can give you the jolly, like, guy that you want to be best friends with. And then simultaneously, he can flip that on a dime and yes. be a demon out of literal hell. Yes. Like, I mean, think of the first shot we see him in, because there's that great bit that I love where where John Turturro calls the front desk. He calls Chet and is like, hey, there's this weird noise going on over there. And there's the shot of what pretty much what Turturro is seeing, kind of POV. And you kind of hear the muffled conversation of Goodman getting the complaint on the other side of the wall. And then the camera tracks the sound as he's storming over to confront the person who may have complained. Mm-hmm. And he's got his like hand on the side of his head and he just, he's just looking crazy. And it's like, that's not charming. You know, he's like, did you complain? So he does have that ability, like you're saying, to just pivot on a dime. And then after that, he, you know, he, he turns the charm on and is well, like, it's, oh, let yeah, me have you buy you a drink and the salesman yuck yucks and all that. I think that's the recipe for all the best John Goodman performances. Cause you think about his big Lebowski performance, he's like the best friend ever to the dude. And then as soon as Smokey uh, crosses the line, he, and doesn't mark at zero, he flips the fuck out. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you have both, both sides of Goodman there. I mean, I think about, have you ever seen 10 Cloverfield lane? No. Dude, you should watch that movie. That that's a should great little thriller. That that's a great board? one. No, that doesn't need to be on the board. But you should put that on like if you're with a group of friends. Like that's a great like thriller to throw on on like a like a Saturday night like viewing sesh with some friends kind of thing. Mm-hmm. No, but Good Goodman plays like a kind of paranoid uh, pr- like doomsday prepper in that movie, and mm-hmm. and it's a perfect kind of you know balance of those kind of sides of him. Yeah. He, he's just great, man. And think of like, like you're saying him and Big Lebowski. He's just so, so, so good in that. But I really, I really love the dialogue that the Coens gave this guy in this movie. I mean, they always write great dialogue, obviously, but I don't know. There, there's something about his word choice and like, uh, like when John Turturro's first explaining what he does, he's a writer and he does us a whole bit about like, can you see the egg on my face and all this stuff? It's like, here, I thought you were just trying to make it, and you're already a big shot. And I, I don't know. He's just so fucking good. What do you think of his his term into that demony thing? Like, I don't, I, I like, again, this is maybe more of not so much about the performance, but like, wh- did that mean anything to you? I have no idea what to really take from that shit, shit. But I, I still yeah. can't make heads or tails of it, man. 
tapping out. I thought like, oh, so the common man is in hell also. And, and then again, I just get to this point where I'm like, put it down. <laughs> put it down. It's beyond me, man. <laughs> yeah, that's that's above my pay grade. Let's talk about the supporting performances here. We got some fucking killer, killer side performances in this movie. Unreal. Got to talk about Tony Shalhoub. Classic. Monk himself. Monk himself, also a mini Coen Brothers alum. Like, he's he's sprinkled in here and there. Like, he's in The Man Who Wasn't There. He's hysterical in that movie. He's in, yep. uh, he like, he sh- he's, again, he's in the stable, so to speak, of the Coens. Mm-hmm. He can deliver a witty, fast-paced monologue better than anybody. I think he's one of the best actors of all time about delivering lines while he's eating. Like he's so good at that. Think of that scene in in this movie where he's just chowing down and there's like food falling out of his mouth and he's yeah. like, "Oh, he likes you. That's a problem or what?" Like he's he's so good at that and in The Man Who Wasn't There, he's like eating a steak at one point and he's talking. Oh, he's right. really I good at that. about that. Yeah. Oh, he's so good. Uh he has some great motor mouth uh fucking dialogue scenes in this scene that I uh, that in this movie that I love uh, I had a great time with him <laughs> that is a great example of an actor who can really deliver that sort of what we would call as fans Coen brothers rhythm like he yeah. is so tapped into his energies fit their words so well it's well, such a good they're they're like getting inspiration from like 40 serials like ah you you talk to the papers see hey yeah. Yeah. you know that kind of thing and like mm-hmm. he's great at that shit Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's and just another guy I'm always happy to see. I love Tony Shalhoub. 100%. Guy that you don't see enough of, Michael Lerner, he is Michael fucking great in this. Lerner. He's the studio chief in this movie that is trying to get uh, Barton to write the wrestling picture. And he's the one who's just obsessed with artists for the longest time until he isn't when he, until, hears, when he sees that the, the script sucks. Yeah, until it's no longer profitable to be obsessed with artists. He, for me stole the show i like on rewatch today every time i hit one of his scenes it's like i have to watch this he's so funny and his he's so fast and his words are so quick and he's, he's so scatterbrained he's he was just cracking me up and his scenes are like very they're like Coen Brothers style dialed up to 11 where like the, the dialogue is coming so fast. It's so furious. And there's all these like little tangent thoughts baked into the whole fucking thing. But he he hands, handles them all so well. And I just thought he was stunning in this movie. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've seen him in anything else. You said we don't see him enough. I completely agree because I couldn't recognize him. And I was just like, who is this? I've I recognize him. He he plays I want to say that he plays the mayor in the Mike the Matthew Broderick Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie from the 90s where he was d- d- dressed up to look like Roger Ebert in a giant fuck you to Roger Ebert because really? Roland em- because Roger Ebert gave uh Independence Day a bad review and Roland Emmerich was pissed. That's crazy. That that's funny. <laughs> but deserved it deserved to be more known by schlubs like us because I thought this was just a great great performance. I loved it. He's okay, so he's got like bit parts in Elf, he's got bit parts in X-Men movies. 
Um, and yes, as I said, he was Mayor Ebert, literally credited as Mayor Ebert in Godzilla. <laughs> wow, so not exactly subtle. <laughs> uh, going back to supporting yeah. performances, John Polito, Cohen Brothers, constant collaborator. He's got a bit part in, Co- in uh, The Big Lebowski. He's got one of my favorite supporting performances in Miller's Crossing. Uh, he's just a great kind of sleazy uh, generally he plays like sleazy sweaty gangster types uh <laughs> or salesman know? or salesman or yeah. or uh private eyes in the case yeah. of uh, big, big lebowski, lebowski. Yeah. um but in this one he kind of plays like a reserved uh you know kind of the guy who gets shit on a lot of the movie which is really funny <laughs> to see he plays a common man. <laughs> in a, a way, man. get him the whiskey, get him the coffee. He's and then like he hasn't left the room yet, and Lerner is saying like, "I oh, said a bad string of luck. He lost all his money and blah blah blah." Or I say that, and like he, the guy is still in the room, and they're talking about him like he's. It left. reminds me of the the bit from Parks and Rec. Jason Manzukis plays the perfume mogul guy. I'm blanking on his name, but Adam Scott is interviewing for a. Uh, accounting job or like a finance job with with that character and jason manzukas at one point goes the job you're interviewing for is johnny's over here and he points to this guy in the corner sitting in a chair just like holding his briefcase like about to get fired or been replaced with adam scott and it just reminds me of that kind of energy of just like you see this guy i have zero respect for this guy you i respect this guy fuck this guy dude how funny is that scene where he gets fired where he's just like he's like you should be kissing his feet. Get the <laughs> hell, get the hell out of here! And he just throws him out, fires him, and then like a scene later, he's in the shot again in the background, like he's just back. <laughs> and he's the only he's the only person it's who says a regular something. occurrence in that man's life. He just says something sensible where he's like, "Yeah, no, you you we you owe it to us." John Turturro just spins this line of like, "I don't like this this like bullshit artsy like." I don't want to put it into words because I've got it figured out in my head. And 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 he's the only one who calls Totoro out on it. And he gets him yeah. thrown in his face so bombastically. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, Polito is really fun. Uh, John Mahoney uh, of Frasier fame makes a great supporting turn here uh, as uh, WP... Oh. Holy shit, I did not did What, did you him. just piece together I who that is? I did not recognize him. Holy fuck, that changes everything. <laughs> yeah. What do you I mean? I know now. I, no, I guess I said it. I just said those words, but I didn't mean them. I just didn't recognize that that was him, and, and you just well, he said plays, it, and it hit me like a thunderbolt. Yeah. Well, he plays W.P. Mayhew, who is supposed to be a William Faulkner at analog, actually, who is just, you know, this guy who is a phenomenal writer who is stuck writing bullshit uh or so you think until you find out that his wife actually writes everything He's doing all the writing yeah yeah uh, you know, i don't know i love him in this movie i think he has some of the best lines of dialogue in the, in the entire oh, movie when he when he gets called out on his drinking by Totoro and he says i'm building a levy that's one of my favorite lines one in drink the movie. at a time yeah one one like brick at a time but you know i think no, hold on. I, this, my fa- before you move off him, the my favorite line of his is when they're in the bathroom when you first meet him, and he introduces himself, and Barton Fink's like, "Oh my God, you're W. P. Mayhew," uh, but he responds by going, "Hold on, I gotta pull it up." He says, 
I gather you're a freshman here, eager for upperclassmen's counsel. However, just at the moment, I have drinking to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he takes the, is that when he takes the huge swig or is it before that? I can't remember. <laughs> it, I don't remember. If it's but it's an absolute after, but it's guzzle from his flask yeah. where you hear the glug glugs going. It's such well, a thank you, drink. my dear boy. Yeah. I think it's just occurring to me now that scene with Totoro and, is it Mayhew, you said? Yeah. Yeah, that scene with Totoro and Mayhew talking about writing and like writing comes from pain is what Totoro is saying. And then Mayhew's like, I just like make, making stuff up. I'm just wondering now, and maybe this is, you know, whatever, but maybe that combination is like how the Coen brothers approach things. Like they take real life pain, but then they also just enjoy making shit up like a demon stepping off an elevator with flames and all this nonsense. But so maybe it's like kind of two different schools of writing that they use. They they cherry pick from both sides where they'll take real life pain and then they'll just make nonsense out of it. Yeah. I like that. I like that interpretation. That's, that's cool. But yeah, uh, WP Mayhew rules. I, I, it's such an absurd fucking character. I mean, rules in the sense of like he's a piece of shit. But yeah. uh, it's really fucking entertaining to watch pieces yeah. of shit on film sometimes. Yeah. This I just want to ask you this real quick. It might spin out too much, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Do you think that a lot of Coen Brothers' performances? are saddled with the baggage of the words? Like, is the quality of the writing so good that we almost notice that more than the performances itself? Or do you think no? It seems to me it's just, it's the kind of dialogue that, like, because it's so flowery and fun to play with and fun to kind of, like, wrap your mouth around, you know? Mm, that, ooh, yeah. That sounds interesting. No, I, I get it. I get it. Who wouldn't want to suck on those words? Who wouldn't want to just... <laughs> choke down on these just, these just take them all the way dialogue. down <laughs> mm, all the way to the hilt baby uh oh well we just gave it away uh <laughs> that's that's highbrow entertainment <laughs> oh yeah dick yeah. sucking jokes anyway anyway but you get what i'm saying it's like the words are almost the star yeah the the words are so fun for these actors to chew on that like it's it's got to be the kind of thing where that does a lot of the work for them and then they can kind of just let the character grow out of those words, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, that's just yeah. my guess. And I am I am not an actor, so I have no idea what their fucking process is. But it's yeah. got, I, I got to believe that it's a little bit freeing when you're working with dialogue that's this over the top because yeah. you don't have any responsibility to adhere to reality. I've also heard that they're very structured with their writing in terms of the script is the script it seems like i think they're very open it sounds like they're open to actors trying things but it doesn't sound like they're open to them trying things with the words they want the words to be what is written and i would imagine that being restrictive but when the quality of the words is so strong it's sure. pro it's probably also liberating in a way of like you don't have to think of fun things to do or you don't have to worry about improvising necessarily you got to hit these words but then how you do them and and where you do them might be more up to you but uh but yeah the, the, the strength of the words is so good and sometimes i feel like actors can get can disappear from the quality of the words because it's just so strong but um not so much in this film i think the actors popped in this one well, let's uh, let's get to putting something else on the board, man. So, love it. 
So where we sit with the current board, we just hit Barton Fink. Barton Fink was number 15. And Jared, I believe you're going to be replacing this movie uh, this week. So what is going on in place of my choice of Barton Fink? Great question. So one came to me organically. I was like, that's the truth. And it also Ooh. has some lifey reasons why it came to me. So I had that little splash of panic. Like I didn't pick one yesterday to, to put on the board today, but I got it. So just recently, I was thinking about our episode of Bad Day at Black Rock. And you mentioned that Paul Thomas Anderson list that you had seen Bad Day at Black Rock mentioned. Which I put in the show notes for last week. Beautiful. So you mentioned that list. And I was like, I was like, I think this is the list Drew was talking about. And I was reading it. And I was seeing other movies on the list. And there was one on there that I was somewhat aware of and had never seen. And then there's a second part. I was just in Miami. So... The movie I'm choosing is Birdcage. <laughs> Fuck yeah. All right, I've, another Mike Nichols. Another Mike Nichols movie. I've never seen it. I love it. No, I love it. I love the committal. It's been a while since we saw uh, or talked about a Mike Nichols movie. Paul Thomas Anderson on this like Brooklyn Vegan or whatever top 10 movies that he's given shout outs to over the years said it's one of his favorite chicken soup movies. In, in so many words. It's one of my favorite chicken soup movies. Yeah. I fucking love The Birdcage. Never it's one of my it. all-time favorite comedies. And uh, have you seen it to death or are you down? Are you down for this? I, dude, I will watch this movie anytime and it's it. f- really fun to talk about. So yeah, let's love let's, it. And I remember, and we'll probably cut this out and save it for the thing, but I remember Mike Nichols saying sometimes a city will o- unlock a movie. And he was struggling to find a spot for The Birdcage and then he stumbled into Miami and was like, this is it. This is the spot. And I was just there. So I was like, I, I think I want to see Birdcage. I love Robin Williams. I don't really know much about the movie outside of that. I love Mike Nichols. It's kind of way further on in his career than when we last talked about him, which is Catch-22 pretty early on. Um, and I think it would be a fun one to throw on, and it felt right based on the fact that I was just there. And PTA gave it a shout-out too. So what do you think about that? Cool. No, I love it, man. Uh, it's some of my favorite comedic performances of all time. Um, and I don't know much about it. I know. And a, I'm a not going to even actors. spoil which performances I'm referring to. Cause I think everyone can have their own takeaways as far as like what the, the best performances of it are. Cause it's top to bottom. One of the best acted comedies ever. Love it, dude. Love it. So what you said that was seven. What's the number again? That is number 15, 15. So it. let's, um, Yeah. As I said at the beginning of the episode, uh, the score right now, I'm going to start keeping score on here. It's of course you are, because you're winning. Winners love to keep score. <laughs> Winners love to keep score. We write the history. You know, <laughs> It's great. It's yeah. great to be a winner. But uh, yeah, you got some work to do, my friends. So we've still got a bunch of numbers that haven't been hit yet. We still haven't hit number two. We still haven't hit four, six, eight, nine, 11, 12, 16, 18, 19, or 20. We got a bunch that are still up there from the original board, and we are now on our 16th movie after this hit. Mm, I I really hope, I don't even care if it's one of yours. I want it to be a new number more than one of mine. If it's, if it's, if you get your fourth in a row, I'm not going to be thrilled, but if it's a new number, I'll be okay with it. The good okay with it either way. Is a but, lot of the numbers we haven't hit yet are ones that were yours to begin with. That's good. I know. I know what I'm secretly rooting for, but uh, we just got to let the dart speak. Do you want to run through the list real quick? Let's do it. All right. 
At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Ex Machina. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, The Big Sleep. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, The Sixth Sense. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Alan Partridge. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, Big Daddy. Number 11, Vertigo. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The King of Comedy. Number 15, The Birdcage. Number 16, Putney Swope. Number 17, Mother. Number 18, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Number 19, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And number 20, The Ballad of Cable Hogue. Cable Hogue. I will be very sad in a way. I'll be thrilled when The Ballad of Cable Hogue is hit. But I'll be sad that that's not the last one because that's such a good name to end a list. Like the way you can play with the words. Speaking of like Coen Brothers words, Cable Hogue. Like it's whoever a has to list replace ender. that movie has a mighty task on their shoulders. Yeah. Not only do they have to contend with the big dog, but also like Cable Hogue. They got to deal with the name contend too. With the big dog. <laughs> oh, sweet. All right, All right you ready for me to toss uh, this thing? Let's do it, my friend. Let's let's do it. Be right back. Tell you this right now we didn't hit one of your numbers you didn't no and okay we, didn't, we also did not hit one of mine we have our first ever bullseye whoa first ever bullseye holy crap okay yeah well uh for those who don't remember a bullseye triggers a friend's choice which means we are going to hopefully have a guest on our next episode um so eric is my very good friend he's my been my best friend since college we were roommates from a number of years in college um he was my roommate for over a year when i first moved out to colorado great friend of uh of mine uh and he wrote our th- and sang our theme song you yeah. hear his uh you hear his voice at the beginning of every episode i was gonna say great friend of the pod as well and i've met him over the years great great dude and that i personally was thrilled when i heard that song that he did and i'm excited to hear what he's got to say for okay i've got dartboard. i've got messages to relay from eric all right he's typing right now he says Okay, I think I maybe mentioned this movie, but I'm not sure you actually watched it or not. If you did, then I don't know if you want to do this one, but Vivarium. I have never heard of that. This is perfect. Do you know what he's talking about? What the fuck is Vivarium? Should I even look it up? Let's see if it's obtainable before we go haywire with this. We have to see if it's rentable. I can do it if you don't want to. I'm looking right now. Hold on. Okay, it came out. Three years ago, uh, 2019, it's by a director named Lorcan Finnegan. Uh, it stars Imogen Poots, Jesse Eisenberg. Um, and yeah, it's available on Amazon Prime for free streaming. So perfect. Per- okay, so I think this sounds like a great choice. We've hit a bullseye. We've, uh, we've got our first ever bullseye. I've never heard of this movie. I'm very intrigued. I know nothing about it. You said Jesse Eisenberg was the only name I recognized. Mm-hmm. I'm fucking down, dude. Out of our hands. Trust I in love the it. dart. I love how love absurd it, this is. This is going to be it. a fucking weirdo one-off. I love it. Love that it's available on Amazon, so it should be relatively obtainable for people. Uh, but excited that it's the first ever bullseye. 
pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Rock on. I, I don't know what the fuck to say. I, I, I'm excited. I'm dude. I mean, it's, you know, the board works in mysterious ways, as we've said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I think we just got to trust the dart. Trust the dart, in the dart. Is, is really, it's thrown us a new, uh, a new curveball this week. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, first ever listener interaction. Super jazzed to see this movie. Can't wait for next week, dude. Hell yeah. I'm excited. All right. With that, that's our Barton Fink episode. Thank you guys for listening. We will catch you next week. Later. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or if you have a bullseye selection you want to send our way, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. If it's for the bullseye, make sure you use subject line bullseye confidential. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. side will certainly cut out have you seen the patriot recently <laughs> the patriot actually yeah. kind of fucks in a lot of ways yeah yeah dude i i kind of like it but it's so over the top and it's a classic emmerich film you know oh but, classic uh, yeah yeah but no, i he, it's, it's the fun. man is is politically very questionable in a lot of ways but uh he's a and that movie, factory <laughs> that movie you want to talk about glossing over some very fucking complicated history yeah uh, Setting it on a plantation in South Carolina for the Revolutionary War is a bold choice. Yeah. Also, quote unquote, free free people work the land. They say they throw that movie that that line Man. in. Yeah, they it's really come. really try to sugarcoat yeah. that history. <laughs> you know, is that's there like a... one of those pieces of candy with like the sour sugar coating around the outside <laughs> of it. Like it's that sugary. Yeah. Is there a more? Is there a bigger? Say what you will in life than mel gibson maybe tom cruise where you just go say what you will about mel gibson but i like his movies or say what you will about you know he's up there in the say what you will pantheon he definitely and tom cruise is up there too for sure but i would say gibson might be the hardest pill to swallow yeah he is a bit because he's because he had that streak of anti-semitism it's so hard to fucking swallow the the amount of vitriolic anti-semitism and racism that has come out of that man's mouth yeah it is real hard to ignore and and accept but my god say what you will some fucking amazing movies (laughs) great great movies man and he's uh, just a great fucking leading man man go back and watch the wait were you the one that told me you had not seen the road warrior yes i am that's correct i have not seen it Oh, <laughs> how can you say you're a Mel Gibson fan and not see The Road Warrior? Because I've seen The Patriot. No, Dude, The Road Warrior fucks so think, hard. Also, I don't think, I'm not sure I've ever seen a, a lethal weapon start to finish. And I still claim what? to be. <laughs> I think I did in high school or something. They what just are never... you basing your Gibson love on? Uh, we Were Soldiers, The Patriot. <laughs> That's the First one out here. Yeah, mouth? that's when I started getting into Gibson was around that time, you know, like <laughs> 2002, 2001. 
uh, you know, those were when movies were popping up on my radar, you know? <laughs> I mean, you could have at least said Braveheart. Jesus Christ. I came to Braveheart late, and um, wow. yeah, it, was, it was pretty good. I liked, I liked it. Or Ransom or Conspiracy Theory or... Conspiracy Theory, I remember. I remember that movie and liking it. That's I'd like to one. see it again. Have it, That's a classic like old 90s thriller. I love those things. Yeah. I kind of... I also did... like. Give me back like my son! My gut says in like 2007 or 2008. It was like shortly after his career had kind of fallen apart, right? And like... You, he was one doing could say these, fall apart. One could also say cratered. That he Or that he just destroyed himself, you know, through his own action. But... He had this court, this sort of period where he was doing a quote unquote comeback. He would star in these like low budget action movies. He's where, still like, doing he was this that guy out extent. for revenge. He still does that, but he's also making. You're talking about like get the gringo again. and shit. Yes, exactly. And I, there was something, again, uh, totally say what you will, but there was something charming about seeing this like I don't know this like disaster, like this Hollywood disaster, like kind of worming along but then again he, he's people say hacksaw ridge is really good i've never seen hacksaw it like ridge is a really good movie he's 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 a great yeah. director i will say i i really like yeah. him as a director even though passion of the christ can go fuck itself um yeah i also just remembered that south park straight up said say what you will about mel gibson <laughs> in an episode which which might be where i even got the got it from do you remember that I do remember <laughs> like that, yeah yeah, say what you will about Mel Gibson, but the son of a bitch knows story structure. 